Hey there, this is Dr. Craig Davies. I just sat down uh, with today's guest, Dr. Brendan McLaughlin, who's a great friend of mine, uh, fellow uh, PGA Tour trainer and therapist, uh, graduate of CMCC, which is the Chiropractic College in Toronto, Canada, uh, and a trainer therapist who works with many of the, the world's elite athletes. And we had an amazing conversation. Uh, a lot of it centered around what it's like to be working um, on a team that is helping an individual athlete perform at his best. And obviously, uh, it's a difficult thing to do. Uh, Dr. B, he works uh, with Justin Rose, who is now the number one player in professional golf. And uh, he works as part of a very intricate team. And I really found some of the details that we mentioned during this conversation as being, uh, one, fascinating, but also very relevant uh, to anybody who does a lot of traveling, whether you're an athlete or uh, someone who's working in business or just someone who likes to travel just for the sake of traveling. Uh, we also talked about the demands that an elite athlete has both on and off the course. Uh, which I think is also very important for anyone who's a junior golfer, collegiate golfer, or someone competing in non-golf. So it could be playing in football, basketball, baseball. Uh, some of the things to start considering if you think you might have a career, whether professionally or just want to be an elite amateur player in your sport. We really kind of got into some of the important benefits that can be attained by having uh, great sleep, water, nutrition, and how you can incorporate those into your daily life, whether you're traveling or at home. Uh, so again, this is Achieve Depth Radio, uh, Dr. Craig Davies, and a special guest, Dr. Brendan McLaughlin. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Achieve Depth Radio. These are the leading experts in energy, nutrition, water, health and human performance, fitness and personal medicine. If you're looking to maximize your mental, physical, athletic and professional performance, these are the experts for you. Achieve Depth Radio, this is not what's now. This is What's Next. Hi there, this is Dr. Craig Davies. Welcome to another episode of Achieve Depth Radio. On today's show, I'm joined by a colleague and one of the up-and-coming and preeminent chiropractors and trainers on the PGA Tour, Dr. Brendan McLaughlin. Welcome. Hi, Craig. Thanks for having me on, bud. No problem, bro. So this is an exciting time to have you on air. Uh, obviously, you've been out on tour for a little while now, but mm -hmm. just this week, right, that... Uh, one of your main players, uh, Justin Rose, just went all the way to number one on the official World Golf Rankings list, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a crazy experience. So, uh, and I didn't find out, you know, as these things typically work. Uh, as you know, when your guys are in the lead, you're kind of getting on a plane to go home or go to yeah. a different tournament, right? So, you never kind of know until you land. And once I landed. I got all these text messages saying, congratulations, like, you know, whatever, whatever. And I was like, oh, did he win? Like, what's going on? Yeah. And for me, in, in this instance, I think as a team, we all thought that he kind of needed to win this tournament to get to world number one. And we all knew he was close. And unfortunately, he didn't win, uh, but he got to world number one regardless. And yeah. uh, I've been working with Justin for two years now, and... Uh, it was just such a surreal experience to have that happen. And I sort of sat back and said, holy cow, like, we did it. Because as a team, that's been kind of our goal. I mean, our main goal has been keeping him healthy as a team. Yeah. Uh, and then the byproduct was, you know, let's try and get to world number one. So uh, when I finally realized that, it took a minute. And I was like, holy cow, like, this is this is a big deal. This is really yeah. cool. This is kind of what we're all after in sport, right? Like, we're all after sort of that highest level that... Yeah. 
you know, whether it's from winning or just extremely consistent play, um, it doesn't matter. But the interesting thing to me on reflection on all of this is looking back and the reason I started working with Justin in the first place uh, was just to try and keep him healthy. Uh, yeah. I mean, as a team and, you know, everyone involved in the sport kind of knows how good he is. Uh, and he's had sort of on again, off again, um, physical issues, you know, as many of these guys do on yeah. tour. Uh, and I was just sort of asked to be part of the team just to sort of shore up that side of side of everything. So that's always been our goal is, you know, how can we, from a treatment standpoint, recovery standpoint, a swing mechanic standpoint, um, how can we keep him healthy so that he can be Justin Rose consistently? Uh, and we've been able, over the last two years, we've been able to do that, uh, you know, and it shows obviously with his world ranking, so. Yeah, no, you know, the the part about when you're flying and then you land and you get all those text messages, yeah. it kind of works both ways because I've had players who are, you know, in the final group or right there. Oh, absolutely. And then you land to me and too. then there's no text <laughs> messages. You're like, ah, oh, yeah, you know, you don't have to check the score. You already know kind of what happened, right? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's uh, just such an incredible experience. Obviously, you know, back in the day, I had an opportunity to work with Rosie for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And he was always that kind of like grinding competitor who, when he's out, on the course you know he's actually kind of vicious like he is full on there oh, to no. win right? absolutely <laughs> yeah. this is uh you know it's it's interesting i think in two years um what i've been able to contribute to justin and the team um you know in my own little world has been you know pretty good i think but uh what i've taken away from working with him has been incredible uh and just what an absolute competitor he is on the course um, and just how he carries himself as a true sportsman off the course and kind of how he sees everything. I mean, he, he's of a generation that's a little bit older, uh, but nevertheless, he's sort of always been on the forefront of trying to push the boundaries of, of performance, um, you know, whether that's with diet and nutrition, whether that's with Sean and all the swing mechanics stuff that they've been doing. Um, or the mindset stuff that he's been doing. He's always sort of tried to push the boundary and see how good he can get and for how long he can be. And he, he's really open to trying different things and being open to these kind of things, which, you know, makes it makes it a big challenge because he's a super intelligent guy. Yeah. Um, so sort of at this point in his career, his, uh, his meter for knowing what's going to work and what's not going to work is pretty good. Right. Um, but he, he's amazing to work with because he's, I'm like, okay, you know, this is what I want to try and these are the reasons why. And if I have a good, if I can propose a good reason to him, he's completely open to it. And, and the same for everyone on the team, whether it's JB or Sean or Phil um, or even Fuchs as his caddy. If, if, if we can come to him and say, hey, mate, you know, I think this is going to help you, he's completely in for it because he wants to win. Yeah, so, you know, you just brought up a couple of good points within – uh, your last couple statements, you know, and um, one of them is you, you talked about how you were brought on to shore up sort of his the health and his ability to perform repeatedly, mm -hmm. um, not only without pain, but also functioning as well as possible. Yeah. Um, so part two of that is then you just mentioned some of the other key players on his team. Mm -hmm. So you have, like you said, you got Sean Foley, who's been with him for a long time, yeah. uh, mentoring with his swing as well as just as a coach. Yeah. Um, Jason Goldsmith yeah. um, working on how would you describe what they're doing because I've only had a little bit of experience uh, with them Jason's role uh, is you know between Jason and Phil Kenyon um, they've 
kind of worked on his putting. Um, and sort of Jason really spends a lot of time with him sort of on the mental side of things. Um, and then Justin Buckthorpe has always done a really good job with the functional nutrition aspect of it, um, some of the dietary recovery stuff aspect of it, um, you know, and takes care of him when he goes overseas. And, and because it's interesting as a team because Justin is one of the true worldwide players. So I can't be with him all the time. Yeah. Um, Justin Buckthorpe can't be with him all the time. Sean can't be with him all the time. So, But collectively between all of us, um, we can spend time with him so that over the course of a year, um, he can be better at the end of the year than he is at the beginning of the year. And, and I think we saw that last year. I think in 2017, um, we did a lot of hard work kind of in the beginning. One, to get him healthy. Uh, two, as a team, to sort of figure out um, how we can sort of help his game to maintain that health so that he can practice and play all the tournaments that he needs to. And those kind of changes and those kind of adaptations take a little bit of time. And then that's why the end of 2017, he just came on like wildfire yeah. and won a whole bunch of times and had a whole bunch of top tens. And, and that sort of carried into this year as well. Um, and so that's, to me, that's always the goal with a player is, okay, we have 365 days to get better. And just the nature of professional sport, there's going to be weeks that we're not at our best. But as long as we're getting better over time, uh, I think that's a win. Yeah, the, the golf trending aspect is is probably more important than a lot of the other individual sports. Yeah. Obviously, if you're a track star, you're you're trying to peak for <clears throat> very specific races. Absolutely. Um, whereas the, the kind of the awkward part of golf is that you have those big tournaments. Um, which, you know, the elite players are trying to peak for. Mm -hmm. um, but the majority of players need to play well to get into those tournaments. Yeah. And then, unfortunately, golf is, you know, one of the few non-reactive sports. So you get up there and every shot you have to think about, there's all the variables, and it's a very conscious decision mm -hmm. every time you make an athletic movement. Whereas most of the other sports, like the ones that we played uh, growing up with rugby and soccer and hockey and those type of things, you're reacting a lot to your surroundings. And if you do make a mistake, there are times where that mistake obviously is, is glaring. Like if you're the last defenseman and you cough up the puck, it's pretty obvious you did that. But yeah. in most of the sports, your team comes in and they can help kind of make up for it. Yeah. Whereas these guys, every single time, it's not perfect. Especially these elite ball strikers like Rosie is and mm -hmm. Chappie and Stenson and all those guys. Mm -hmm. They're furious at times and the error <laughs> is so small, you know? Um, yeah, yeah and, I, and I think that speaks to... Uh, and especially in golf, you know, kind of the world we live in, um, people always talk about, oh, we have to build up physical capacity. We have to do this from the physical side, this, this, and this. But the thing in sport, and especially in golf, there, I mean, there's a whole bunch of other sides that we have to work on. There's the technical aspect. There's the tactical aspect of how you approach golf courses. Um, and especially in golf, there's a huge mental aspect. So I think that's why, as a team, we can all work on those things and understand what the other people are doing in the team and kind of have our own knowledge about different things um, to improve all of those qualities over time. And then also recognizing that um, we're not, we can't, you're right, we can't gear up for a track meet at the end of the year. It's, it's yeah. every week. So for me, kind of how I approach it is, okay, Thursday, I know we got to tee off. Monday night, Tuesday morning, that's when I see him. What do we need to do in those three days? 
but being very conscious of, you know, Sean's got to get in his work. Phil's got to get in yeah. his work. He's got to be on the course. And all of those things add up, especially for a guy who's been playing for 20 years. Uh, we have to be very mindful of load. And load isn't just in the gym. Right. Um, you know, sometimes I think as trainers and therapists and stuff, we think what we do is super, super important. And, and, and it is. But if we're not mindful of load outside of our world, I think we can get into trouble. So guy's been traveling for a long time, um, had to play a very long pro-am. And then we're like, okay, bud, we're going to go in the gym for three hours. Right. Um, that to me may work with a young guy, may, may whatever, but sort of as we go through the sport, uh, we have to be a little more clever with it. So sometimes going in the gym may just be doing a little bit of movement recovery session and then we're done for that day. Yeah. Uh, acknowledging sort of the load outside of our little world. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a huge, huge concept for people to appreciate. Now, you know, one of the things we're starting to see, you know, when I first came out on tour, when it's like working with players before I came out on tour, the junior tours at that time, the collegiate tours were pretty minimal. They mm -hmm. played a very... Uh, short schedule, big breaks in between events. There really wasn't that many. And now, yeah. one of the reasons you're seeing these young kids, you know, the Speeds, the Thomas, Cameron Champ, these guys coming out and they're going to be polished, is because the junior circuits are very high level now. Oh, absolutely. Um, the collegiate tournaments obviously are run as professional as possible. And so the load is definitely higher. Now they do have a bit more time in between yeah. compared to our guys. Yeah. Our guys play every week. But if you're looking at, you know, if you're a business person traveling, because, you know, you know, we travel a lot. Mm -hmm. And so there's times, you know, I take the same flight sometimes with some of these business guys. I start to recognize who they are. Mm -hmm. And you can see, especially because I've been doing this for so long, both in our field and the people who travel in the traveling circus that is the PGA Tour. <laughs> um, but also the business guys I start to see over and over again on some of my flights. You can see their body change, not only from a... Um, muscle fat ratio, yeah. but the health, you can see their health start to change and our yeah. athletes are the same. So the, like you said, the variable, the load aspect um, of training. So the mental and physical stress of the on course, the training loads, the traveling, the type of food options they have, yeah. all those variables come into play. And that's what makes it extremely challenging. Definitely when the guys are on tour, um, to work through like an actual periodization program. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like so that's one of the funny things. I can tell someone hasn't worked on tour yet with an athlete. They might have worked with a high-level player. Yeah, yeah. But they haven't worked on tour because when they start asking me about what the periodization program is, I don't think they appreciate that at some point yeah. the athlete might have just played eight tournaments in a row, had a week off where they went and did corporate events, and then mm -hmm. played four more in a row. You, you can't periodize that. And, no. you know, you know, you're fortunate with, you know, someone like Justin who, for the most part, dictates a schedule. But even with that, he's playing all over the world, yeah. uh, has a ton of corporate endeavors that he has to do. And, and then he has to be a dad and do all those wonderful things uh, that comes with being a parent versus, you know, a young guy who's just getting his card is playing any week that he can play in. Yeah. And, and that's that's a massive, massive challenge. And and one of the things um, kind of in my role as a therapist um, that I had known, but it was sort of reinforced once I got on tour is many times, you know, when we're struggling with 
trying to help a guy's back or a guy's shoulder or whatever. We have to take into account everything else that's going on. Because in a perfect world, if I'm sleeping 10 hours a night and I'm eating meticulously and whatever, I'm allowing my body an opportunity to heal. Yeah. Um, and in the cases of overseas travel and playing and all of these other things, um, my body's not in a position to heal. So, you know, that's one, one of the big things that um, Justin does really well. He, he's really got his diet um, really down. Uh, we've worked on his sleep hygiene a lot. We've worked on mitigating strategies for airline travel. Uh, we've worked on all these things to try and shore up um, how much stress is put on the system from all these things outside of playing golf. Yeah. And, you know, it shows up because, as you said, at the end of a year, right, especially last year. Mm -hmm. So, unfortunately, last year he flew over to China and you and Justin weren't there. So, I saw him. Yeah. And... So I worked with him that week, and then he beat Henrik, which was one of my guys, I think, in a playoff, if I remember correctly. Yeah, sorry, so, bud. Yeah, that was a bit of a, a bummer. But, um, you know, like you said, one of the things that he does so well, uh, because of the team that he has around him, and that's mm -hmm. the key, is the team he's built is very effective overall. Yeah. And and so at the end of a season, when most people are breaking down, yeah. right, or functioning at a lower level than they were in January or February, yeah. he's... I don't know if it's necessarily that he's playing better than he was early in the season. It might be, um, but he's definitely not playing worse. Yeah, it's so. My thinking is, and kind of how I explain it to my young guys, because um, young guys typically they're good despite themselves oftentimes, yeah. Yeah. right? So when their diet and everything isn't in line, they can still play, but then they start to falter as the season goes on. So. I, my goal is, you know, coming into January, I want Justin to be 100%. Acknowledging that over time, just with the stress of travel and playing and everything, he's going to show up, you know, at 80%. But if he can show up at 80% at the end of the year when everyone else is 50-60, yeah. then that's a win. That, yeah, that's when we get it. And, and there's, a, there's a lot to that. And, and just kind of reinforcing that with him and how important that is, uh, I think is super important. Yeah, well, look, you know, consistently, definitely since you've started working with him, end of the season last year was spectacular, mm -hmm. an unbelievable run. Um, he obviously now has gone to number one in the world because he's playing fantastic golf. Yeah. And all those small little details that go into a season that you guys have done have led to him excelling, well, through the whole year, but definitely at the end of the year, it seems like he just hits this stride yeah and and it's it's really about you know i'm super lucky to have the team around me with him that i do i mean sean and i talk pretty much every day for hours about his golf swing come um, on sean's talking about a golf swing <laughs> i cannot believe that <laughs> you know you know and and in trying to one again it always goes back to is this safe or isn't this safe mm -hmm. And two, uh, if it is safe, you know, how can we get the most out of it? And, and for Sean, it's really about simplifying it for Justin and conveying it in a way that, that makes sense to him. You know, and the same, and the same thing with, um, with Phil Kenyon and his putting. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time last spring with Phil just asking him about certain things and figuring out physically if there was things that were um, helping or hindering his putting. And... You know, the same with Justin Buckthorpe. We're always having these constant conversations between all of us as a team to see where we can shore up certain things. Yeah. And at the end of the day, the one, the one thing is it's, it's always about the player. 
Um, and I think that's an important thing for people to realize. It, it's it's always about the player. Mm-hmm. Um, so we might have a perfect grand design of what we want to do. Um, you know, for me in my head, I say, okay, this is how I'd want to run a perfect week. Sometimes it doesn't work like yeah. that. Sometimes, sometimes the week runs perfectly and it's beautiful, and, yeah. and more often than not, it doesn't just because of the demands of being one of the best in the world. So you have all these corporate things, you have your family, you have to do all these things away from golf, plus you have to put in the time. So if I have my plan and we all collectively sort of know what we want to accomplish that week, um, we have to relegate some decision-making to him. And, and that's one of the things I've been so fortunate with him is like, okay, I want to do this this week or I want to do this today. Uh, and he's very honest with me and I say, you know what, that's an amazing idea. Or you know what, I get it, but today's not the day. Yeah. Um, and, and just checking in with your athlete, I think, is so important. And because he's been doing this for so long and because he's so aware of his body, I think it's it's a very easy conversation to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, on top of, you know, all the monitoring tools we use, uh, whether it's HRV or different things like that, just having that conversation on a daily basis is super important. And, and whether that's me having that conversation with him on the treatment table or in the gym, whether that's Sean having that conversation on the range, um, we're always just sort of checking in with him and saying, "Hey, mate, how are you feeling? What's going on? Yeah, tell me what you think." Yeah, and and so there's probably people at home who think of golf obviously being an individual sport, mm-hmm. right? And uh, and it is. There's no question oh, that absolutely. you know those guys go out and compete, and obviously at the time that they're playing, the caddy also is very influential. There's many times my player comes in and they're not happy with decisions that are made between them and their caddy and it has an effect on their their game but at the end of the day uh, as we've alluded to you know for the first section of this podcast is that the team component of an individual sport is extremely important and if you think about race car driver yeah you know obviously the driver is the person who's competing in the moment and without the driver making the decisions that are necessary to win or to place as high as possible it's not going to happen. It doesn't matter who the team is behind him. Just like out here, if I have a player who's, you know, a low-level collegiate player, but still a good golfer, but a low-level collegiate player, we do all the great work, have the same team around him, he's not going to win the Masters. Right? Yes. But a guy who potentially could win the Masters is highly unlikely to do that unless he has a great team around him. And we've seen that because you go to, the, for example, the, um, the World Match Play competition where you have 64 of the top players in the world. And we went through and we checked out how many of those players traveled with a trainer or therapist, never mm-hmm. mind short game coach, full swing coach. But it was 90% of the field yeah. had one. So the idea that this is an individual sport that you can do it alone is similar to like a CEO of a company being able yeah. to run a company on the day-to-day operations and check all the boxes and that company be successful. It's not realistic. No, I'm, I mean, ultimately, he's the guy who has to make the shots and, and, and do all of those things. Um, to me, the interesting thing with individual sport is, and you see it with young guys on, on the mini tours or on developmental tours, when they have to do everything themselves, um, at some point, their innate ability and innate creativity when they're on the course is blocked. So to me providing a process or a structure to a training week or a tour week is important because I'm taking some of the the decisions away from the athlete. Yeah. 
and the reality is when you when you look at the science you know as human beings we can only make so many decisions a day so if he has to worry about what he's eating what he has to do in the gym on his own all of these other things um, how he's supposed to be practicing short game what he's supposed to be doing on the range by the time he gets to the course um, he's created so much decision making fatigue that trying to figure out what he's doing on the course is is a gamble yeah uh, so to me, the magic in a process, assuming you have a good process, now if you have a bad process, yeah. it's a different story, but uh, assuming you have a good process and provide structure for your athlete, um, I think that just allows them to show up on the course more consistently because um, the reality is all these guys are amazing. Yeah. Like they're just incredible athletes uh, and incredible creativity when you allow them. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, the funny thing with Justin is, He's sort of known as this analytical guy. He's sort of known as this technical guy. And yeah, there's a big piece to that. I mean, he's a golf nerd. He loves the swing. He loves all the technical stuff. But if you watch him play um, from awkward lies or from bunkers or whatever, he's incredibly creative. Right. And I think if you allow all the structure to take care of itself, he can be that creative golfer on the course. And I, and I think nothing else we've done a really good job of that so when he goes to play he just goes to play and he does his thing and obviously Fuchs is one of the best caddies in the world so um, they've sort of built that relationship you know years and years before I came in um, and we've just solidified that structure so that he can go out and just be who he has to be yeah it's amazing uh, we're gonna take a short break here but um, when we come back one of the things I want to talk about is some of the ways that you're using, and you mentioned HRV, but how do we monitor our, our player uh, to see physically are they able to do what you want them to do and, and are things going over the course of a season the direction you want? Mm -hmm. Perfect. We'll be right back. You got it. Injuries, headaches, back problems. We all experience physical pain in our lives, and the majority of that pain is caused by one thing, inflammation. At Luminos, we've created a safe, all-natural pain relief patch that directly targets pain instantly with no side effects. Just apply the Luminos patch directly to an area of pain. The relief can be felt in minutes and it will last all day. Go to Luminos.com right now and start living without pain today. Hey, welcome back. I'm here with Dr. Brendan McLaughlin and one of the things we talked about very briefly earlier uh, was you just mentioned uh, HRV measurements. Yep. But as we've alluded to throughout this uh, first section, is the importance of making sure our athletes are up to the demands that we're either we want to place on them or that they want to place on themselves. And uh, can you give me some insight as to whether it's with Justin or some of your younger players, because mm -hmm. you work with some great young players as well, um, some of the tools that you might use to make sure that what you want to do with that player is appropriate at that time? Yeah, I'm, I mean, HRV's sort of the in vogue thing to use um, and there's different applications for it. I'm fortunate in particular with, uh, with Rosie that um, Justin Buckthorpe's created his own HRV system. Uh, he's got a proprietary system that he uses with Justin and it's been extremely helpful um, in, in really informing our decisions and, and seeing um, sort of what affects what. Um, and we also know sort of where his baseline trend is. 
without getting too scientific. Um, some guys sort of spend sort of a lot of their time on, on one side of the spectrum and they need certain things and other guys sort of spend their time on the other side of the spectrum and they need certain things. Um, and then when things are off, um, you know, we've done a pretty good job of predicting uh, illness or injury or that kind of thing and trying to mitigate that with that. But I mean, I mean, HRV is sort of a thing I use with a lot of my athletes with different software, but simple things like checking in, how did you rate your sleep scale one to 10? Um, what were your calories like yesterday? These little things, kind of the basic things, um, like a grip test, uh, those are all super important little things that we can do without getting overly complex with the HRV. Yeah. So, um, like I do use Omega Wave with some of my younger guys. Um, I use Buckthorpe's system with Rosie. Uh, and that's very helpful from a overall load standpoint. Uh, and it, to me, I use it to help guide my treatment. So I know if he's trending a certain way, certain treatment modalities are going to be more beneficial uh, versus if he's trending the other way, you know, other treatment modalities are going to be beneficial. And then also in the gym too, that helps me monitor and, and modulate load and intensity of different exercises and sort of what I choose to do in the gym that day. Uh, and, and to me, it's, it's creating that over time. Now, the big thing with monitoring too, though, to me, uh, is especially with young guys or other players, if we don't have the basics down yeah. and we're not working hard, there's kind of no point in monitoring. Yes. Right? So so with Justin, I'm super lucky. Uh, and with the kids that I've worked with for a while, I'm super lucky because I'm like, okay, this is how much sleep you need. These are how much calories you need. This is what you need to do just from a lifestyle standpoint, from a stress mitigation standpoint. And then we can start to nuance it a little bit with things like HRV and different things. But um, when people want to jump on all these tools and then they, and they're not sleeping properly they don't know what proper sleep hygiene right. is um, they're not eating enough or they're not eating the right things uh, to support their level of activity then it's kind of a moot point yeah and and for those who don't know uh, I'm sure a lot of you do but uh, HRV is referring to heart rate variability mm-hmm. and in essence um, briefly what that means is you know each of us has a heart rate so Let's just say, for example, your heart rate was, uh, resting heart rate was at 60 beats per minute because that's easy. It's one per second. Uh, your heart rate variability is the space or the variability in the space between each beat. And so what that means is if you had one beat every second and it was exactly every second, that's not an ideal heart rate variability because there is no variability. Whereas you could have 60 beats per minute and have a space of 1.2 seconds and then 0.8 seconds and differences between each of those heartbeats. And that is a, actually um, usually an indication that the system is in a healthier um, place. So that's what heart rate variability is. And obviously there's way more to it than that, but just uh, very briefly. And then, uh, Brennan, you made a great point. And I think this happens not only in our industry where we become so focused on measuring because now we can measure a lot. Yes. But if we look at a lot of the, the golf instructors, they measure a ton now, you know, whether you're using flight scope or track man, um, body track, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So everyone is accumulating all this data. Yeah. 
So you have a lot of information to create stats with, but most people, one, don't know how to utilize that data. No. And if you've collected all the data from one section, but not from other sections, and you're making your decisions just on the data from one section, and you've missed everything else, now you can also be causing a problem uh, with your athlete. And one of the things in, in our industry, I think the difficulty is, as you kind of alluded to, for the individual you're working with, how much do you need to collect mm -hmm. and how much of what you're collecting is actually relevant based on the other factors? Like you said, so if I have someone, one of my athletes who's just traveled, he hasn't slept, um, he's eating food that he's not accustomed to eating and so he's having different reactions to his food, yeah. I can't be as concerned by tracking what his load in the gym has been no. because he's not going to be prepared to play that day or to, to work out that day in the way that his data leading up to that point would indicate. And then if you've got someone who's sleeping amazing, he's been lifting amazing, but then all of a sudden he just broke up with his girlfriend of five years, that's a completely different factor that doesn't come in the measurements yeah. that we have. And I think one of the things is lost in all this data tracking, especially in our world from a physical standpoint, whether it's monitoring the autonomic nervous system, whether it's monitoring power output, all of these things. Um, someone once described it to me like you and I are, you know, an old Nokia cell phone. Mm -hmm. Justin Rose is the new iPhone XS. Right. He's always going to be the iPhone XS. So he can do all that crazy stuff that the iPhone can that our Nokia can't. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> but if he's at 100% battery, he can do all of those things for a lot longer and get away with it. If he's at 10% battery, he can still do all that stuff, but there's a finite amount of time he can do it. Yeah. And, and I think that's kind of the recovery thing because I think athletes and especially athletes who look at their data, uh, oftentimes there's trouble because they're like, oh, my HRV is bad today or oh, my yeah. sleep score is bad today. And it's like, okay, that, that's perfectly fine. Um, you're still one of the best players in the world, you know, you're still the best college player on, on the, in the U.S., whatever it may be, so you can still go out and perform just fine, but there's just a bigger cost to doing business long term. Yeah. And that's where recovery stuff comes in. That's where, uh, and whether that's more sleep, whether that's different modalities, whatever it may be, um, that's where some of our mitigation strategies come in. Yeah, that makes, makes complete sense. Uh, unfortunately, I guess I'm a Nokia, which yeah, is well, at least I could have an old Blackberry. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll be old Canadian. Yeah. Least, there right? you go. We'll be Blackberries. Um, yeah. So those those are all fantastic uh, points, and I think it's important <clears> for <throat> for those coaches, whether you're a golf coach, uh, whether you're working in a different sport. Obviously, we work with athletes from different sports as mm -hmm. well. And when you have these athletes come in, knowing how relevant the data is that you have to work with them is important, and also. You know, I have certain athletes who just technically or whether you want to call it talent aren't as good mm -hmm. as some of my other athletes. Yeah. And you have to kind of, if they both have the same goal, so let's keep the golf for now. If I have someone who's a Hunter Mahan who was elite at the young age, a Kevin Chappell who won the NCAAs, a Justin mm -hmm. Rose who was competing to win the Open Championship as a teenager, mm -hmm. those guys are obviously really good. Yeah. Right? Uh, you just don't get to that level by accident. Yeah. Those people, 
you have to look at the risk reward, which is something you referred to a little bit earlier. Absolutely. Very, very differently than in someone who's never won a college tournament, who's never won a junior tournament, but also wants to play on the PGA Tour. So their talent is a little different. Yeah. So you need to max out other parameters to give them an opportunity to compete. And so for those people, sometimes you have to change your risk reward system, in my opinion anyway, to give them an opportunity to be a little stronger, be a little bit more mobile, be a little bit more resilient to, to the training. Because, you know, I, I used to work with uh, Sean O'Hare and one of the things with him is he never got hurt when he was playing. He got hurt when he was practicing Mm -hmm. because of the high volume of practice that goes into it. And I think a lot of coaches uh, don't consider the ramifications of five hours of ball striking. That's very important. And one one of the things that's not monitored in golf. Absolutely. So every other sport, you know, high-level teams and high-level individuals, they monitor their practice load. And that's something that's just not considered in golf, which yeah. is which is mind-boggling. It absolutely <laughs> is mind-boggling. Um, you know, and one of the very unique things about golf, and I, it's starting to change a little bit. I'm seeing with these younger guys, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm hoping that it continues to change. Is after they're done pra- or playing, competing, and they've already gone through weeks of traveling, a whole week of preparation. They've slogged it out on Thursday. It's Friday afternoon, and they might have played average, or they feel like they should have done better. And they go spend two more hours in the heat slapping balls around with a body that isn't physically as primed as it was five hours earlier. It's not as physically primed as it should be the next day when they play. They're going to have to manipulate to get the same ball flight because everything is about ball flight with these guys, right? Mm -hmm. And yet if you did like a, a broad jump test or a vertical test, they'd be showing an extreme lowering in their potential. Oh, absolutely. So I, I would, why are we doing it? Yeah, I mean, I, I would even, um, just on some of the stuff I've done with some of my guys, you look at the club head speed before round and the club head speed after the round, and it's significantly different. Right. And different enough to eventually affect mechanics. So, yeah. I mean, there's always going to be the guys that, you know, show up on TV that are practicing after for two, three hours and they're sort of branded kind of the hero and the mindset is, oh, everyone has to be doing that. But the reality is those guys are the exception to the rule. Yeah, like the VJ, right? Yeah, you know, absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll give that guy some props because I don't think there's anyone on the planet who has practiced as much as VJ Singh, no. hit as many balls <laughs> as VJ Singh, and at the age he's at now, which has got to be closing on mid fifties, yeah. is still unbelievable. Oh, absolutely, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, but that is another guy who has checked as many boxes as possible throughout mm-hmm. his career to make yeah. sure his body functions yeah. as well as it does. Now, you know, one of the things I think when we look at the volume of practice that our guys put in, mm-hmm. especially after a round, is the failure to accept the long-term negative effects of doing that on a daily basis, right? So if you go in and you drain the tank during a course of play, then you go out, drain it more after a round, gives you less time to recover because you spent more time out there. Then a lot of these players who aren't doing the measuring, now we said you can over-measure parameters, but if Mm -hmm. you aren't measuring any parameters, and then you go out, you've practiced for two hours after a round, then you're like, okay, I gotta check the workout box. So you go do your workout, then you got to do your hour of mental training, yeah. but you're stressed going into your mental training. So now your mental training is stressful to you. And then 
week after week after week of doing this, you end up just completely depleting the system, yeah. even though you think you're checking all the right boxes to be better. Uh, and I, th I honestly think that if these guys, especially with the wraparound schedule on the elite tours of the world, if they don't start appreciating the day-to-day -day accumulation of trauma that these golf swings are putting on their body, the careers are just going to get shorter and shorter. Yeah, it, so it's interesting. I, th I think um, just observing kind of all levels of golf, I think especially kind of halfway through a season, guys get to a point where they're just sort of they're running on empty and they just want to continue to run on empty. And, and part of that is I don't think they've done enough preseason or had the yeah. opportunity to do enough preseason to sort of build up a reserve capacity and then the other problem is exactly what you just said they're doing too much on a day-to-day -day basis and I, and I think the other problem on the PGA Tour too that I see is guys a lot of times will do the same thing every day yeah. so they're not really increasing technical ability they're not necessarily working on tactical stuff they're just kind of checking boxes for the sake of checking boxes and they're not really getting better mm -hmm. and then overlaying all of that is just a profound amount of fatigue yes um and and it's really hard to get better at at anything when you're fatigued like that especially decision making and tactical stuff um so that's that's kind of a real problem and i think if guys had a better plan um or a more appropriate plan for them as an athlete what what do they need to work on uh, whether it's you know parts of their technical game or mental game or physical stuff, what do they need to work on? And and this is for golfers of all levels. Just because player X practices five hours a day doesn't mean you have to. Yeah. Just because player X goes to the gym six days a week during tournaments doesn't mean you need to. What what is going to allow you to show up on Thursday and be the best version of yourself? And then how do we program that backwards? Absolutely. I think that's important. Yeah, those are great points. And, you know, obviously you're, you're looking at the U.S. Open champ who likes to go in and, and lift heavy before he plays mm -hmm. constantly. And that obviously works amazing for him. Works amazing for him, but he's also someone who takes many more weeks off. Absolutely. Right? Versus some of the players um, who we see, because we see these guys on a daily basis in there, who are, they have to check that box. And you have to give them, you know, credit because they're going in and they're attempting to improve. So that every single day, they're doing a pre-round warm-up, which I think is absolutely paramount, and it helps structure you not only physically to get ready to go play, but if it's done properly, it helps excise the negatives of your life. Not necessarily negatives, but just life away from the course. It gives you that transition period to be able to go to the range and practice facility ready to yeah. go. Um, but then they come in afterwards regardless of what week they're on, regardless of how deep into the season they are, um, how they played, and they go through their training program because that's the box they have to check. Yeah. And if you're not taking the weeks off to recover, like a Brooks does, mm -hmm. it just doesn't make sense. To me, I, it, the thing that resonates with me is kind of the concept of deep work. So a lot of these guys in, in all sports, they kind of just half-ass everything. Yes. And, and not intentionally. I don't think intentionally. I don't think anyone goes to the gym and is going like, I'm going to half-ass it today. They're, they're trying their best with what they know, but I don't think they're providing enough one downtime mm -hmm. just on a day-to-day -day basis, but over a year 
so that when they try to make tactical changes, so that when they're doing putting work, so that when they're in the gym, they can really work and be present and make it hard and difficult and have the physical and mental ability to do so. I think those changes that all these guys are searching for, I think require a lot of hard work. And the problem is they don't give themselves an opportunity to remove themselves from it, to one, reflect on it, to two, physically recover and mentally recover from it so that they can come back and hit it again hard. Yeah. I, th I think it's just sort of a thing that they kind of all do, um, and some of them do it better than others, I think. But you need that time away. You need that space away. Now, to have that conversation with a guy who's trying to struggle to keep his card, You're right. that's a difficult conversation to have. So then it's then it's not then it's not okay. You know you should take weeks off. It's okay. What can we do at night just to shut you down, remove you from golf? What are the things that are going to help you show up the next day better, and then so that you can put in the work and then shut it down and repeat. Yeah, and so this kind of circles back to you if we're looking at the importance of having a great team, mm -hmm. a team that communicates. Oh, absolutely. Because I'm on a, numerous teams with different athletes, yeah. and some of some of those teams are fantastic and how well we communicate and, and we're on the same page mm -hmm. in other ones there's almost no communication whatsoever and you know as you said you need to have the the mental acuity and the energy and the reserves in order to make a change whatever change that is whether it's your short game yeah. full swing just how you're playing courses and then the physicality of, of the game and if we're not communicating as a team we can overload the player with a lot that's going on all at the same time versus taking time for, you know, if I know that, uh, for example, if I'm working with a guy that works with Sean, right, mm -hmm. who we both work with players who work under him. So if he, I know he's about to make a ton of changes and the, the volume of practice is going to go up, yeah. I need to adjust my load, my training load and my therapy load and the recovery tools to Absolutely. match that. Absolutely. But if I don't know he's doing that and then I think, okay, we have a time, we got four weeks off, this happens all the time. We have four to six weeks off, which is a very very seldom happens in this world now yeah. for, for league golf. And I think, okay, we need to make these changes. But I don't know that the player is going to be hitting balls for six hours a day trying to make a technical change. Now we've just completely created a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's certain teams that do an amazing job of communicating and mitigate those kind of um, yeah. situations and allow an opportunity for, like, for you guys, for Phil to be able to work at a certain time and create a skill set that's at a high level that can be maintained and then Sean can work on his and you have your period and Justin to work on his. But if you don't have that and you guys are all trying to make amazing changes at the same time, that is not ideal. But that happens all the time, oh, even at the most elite levels of this sport and other sports. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. I'm just so lucky to be part of that team because even even from the standpoint of uh, you know Mark as his caddy, Mark kind of knows what we're all trying to accomplish. And, and Mark's goal is to help Justin show up and be Justin every day. Yeah. Um, so Mark's always coming to me and to Sean and to everyone else on the team being like, hey, is this the best idea for him? Or hey, should we do this? Or hey, should we do this? So he's very involved as a caddy from that standpoint yeah. because, I mean, for five hours a day, he's the guy in his ear all the time, right? Right, yeah. So e even, even if... You know, we know that Justin's, you know, playing really well and maybe he wants to go practice after and hit a whole bunch of balls. Uh, it's always a conversation between the team like, hey, is this the best idea given everything else that's going on? And sometimes it's okay uh, for a, a minor amount of time and sometimes it's probably not the best decision. 
even though, uh, you know, he's Justin Rose and, you know, he wants to be amazing. So he's going to have that drive to do all those things. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of times with these guys, uh, it's reining them in. It's, it's, it's having a justification to say, okay, I know you just went out and killed it. I know that you're, you know, really happy and you want to go practice or conversely, listen, mate, I know you played terribly. I know you want to go practice for three hours, but let's try and do this, this, this instead mm -hmm. uh, so that we can show up tomorrow better. And I think reining them in is very important. Yeah, that's interesting. So what, you know, you're talking about a lot of times about recovery here in this conversation. Yeah. What are some of the tools that you have found work well, whether it's, you know, with some of your junior collegiate athletes or some yeah. of your professional clients that you're using these days um, that you find is really beneficial? Yeah, I, I mean, for me, obviously, sort of with my backgrounds, a lot of my recovery modalities um, are hands-on therapy. Yeah. So again, <clears throat> um, kind of without getting too sciencey, but it will sort of depend on kind of how they're presenting sort of what I choose to do on given times. And also you have to take into athletes preference sometimes too, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that that's a thing that we all have to acknowledge and is patient preference, right? So whether you're in clinic or you're on tour or whatever, if one of your patients absolutely hates acupuncture and you know that acupuncture could help them, you're probably not going to do it. Yeah. Right? So, so that plays a role in kind of everything too. Um, so for me, from, from a recovery standpoint, uh, soft tissue therapy, uh, acupuncture, um, you know, we use the Norman tech a lot. Uh, we use EMS devices a lot, uh, like the Mark pro and complex. Um, and then simple things like contrast showers. Uh, we use different essential oil blends for different things to promote recovery. Uh, the sleep hygiene is massively important to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and just mitigating all of that. Um, and then in the gym too, uh, it might we might call for just a light mobility, sort of cool down, uh, some more aerobic work, and kind of all of these things fill in sort of depending on how the athlete presents. Um, so it really depends on the day. So it's not like, okay, today you're going to do this. It's, okay, well, what's going on, uh, whether we're using the monitoring tools or just asking him, uh, and that will kind of help direct us. And then depending on how the athlete feels, after the intervention, I think is important too. Yeah. Uh, so checking in with them after the fact and being like, "Hey, how do you feel? Oh, I feel great." And then, uh, or I don't feel good, or whatever. Um, and then that sort of informs our decisions going forward. That's actually a good point. A lot of people will say, "Okay, I'm going to give you this recovery tool because it's supposed to be very good, mm -hmm. but not necessarily good for every player or yeah. every athlete." Yeah, I, I mean, you have you have individual variability, and then within that individual, you have variability. Um, depending on what they've been doing, depending on the time of year, depending on so many factors. So um, just because something works for somebody uh, doesn't mean it works for everybody, you know, as, as we know, but I think that's an important reminder. And the other thing too with recovery, I think we have to look at recovery modalities as a stress because it is a stress. Yeah. So I can... To me, I see it sometimes uh, where you can over-recover. Mm -hmm. So you've applied so much stress to the system that the body goes, uh, I, don't, I don't know what I'm doing. You inevitably create a delayed recovery because you've just done too much. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so being very mindful of that too, I think is important. 
Perfect. So we're gonna take a, a little break, and then what I'm gonna do is come back and just kind of pick your brain about some of the types of training right now that are interesting to you. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily just for your golfers, but what are you interested in doing right now? Cool. What piques your interest training? Mm-hmm. Um, we'll go from there. Awesome. Perfect. Injuries, headaches, back problems. We all experience physical pain in our lives, and the majority of that pain is caused by one thing, inflammation. At Luminos, we've created a safe, all-natural pain relief patch that directly targets pain instantly with no side effects. Just apply the Luminos patch directly to an area of pain. The relief can be felt in minutes and it will last all day. Go to Luminos.com right now and start living without pain today. Okay, I'm back with uh, Dr. Brennan McLaughlin and one of the things we wanted to talk about is what are you interested? What When you go to the gym, what are the kind of things that you get excited to do these days or Um, even what are some of the kind of components of training that maybe you haven't done a lot of, but you're interested in kind of working towards or moving into at some point? Uh, was your background was in powerlifting at one point? Yeah. So maybe we should talk a little bit about your background. Yeah. So so I'm, I'm, I'm always going to be inclined to lift heavy things. I think that's just sort of in my DNA for whatever reason, uh, whether it was powerlifting or at a stint in weightlifting and that sort of brought me into CrossFit for a whole bunch of years. Um, I know in some circles that has a dirty connotation, but I, I think when it comes to training, I think it's very similar to some of the principles we talked about before. I think for me personally and for the general population, um, I think working hard is something that's very underestimated, the value yeah. of just really hard work. Mm-hmm. like training should be hard yeah to me training should be very very difficult right and then when you dig kind of deeper into the science a little bit one of the things that sort of piqued my interest a lot is um a lot of the research from the omega wave guys and and some scientists in russia about what adaptations are we actually creating when we train and when i think we go to a principle-based approach for training it becomes less about, oh, what exercise is best or, oh, what type of training is best. It's what adaptations are we after? And then that allows us to do a whole bunch of things, mm-hmm. whatever I like, whether whether I like barbells or dumbbells or kettlebells or whether I hate all of that and I just want to go to the track or whether I just want to do, you know, some gymnastics-based work. What it, whatever it may be, um, that sort of frees us up when we start to approach training from a principle-based approach um, and trying to ascertain what kind of adaptations do we want. Uh, and I think for me, um, obviously we have to have joint competency um, in individual joints, but then within movements. Um, and then once we have that, I, I think there's just such a value in strength training. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether that be in athletics, whether that be in everyday people, um, whether it be in some of the kids I work with, I, I think there's just real value in working hard. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. Well, I think, you know, prior to the last, man, well, very short period of time before it became a pr- like sort of commonplace where people really don't lift anything anymore yeah. in their day-to-day lives. But it wasn't that long ago where the vast majority of the population had to do some sort of manual work oh, during the day. And obviously if you go back further than that, 
we were at one point lifting very heavy things at, on occasion. Um, you know, everyone's got their own belief system. So whether you think that we came from trees <laughs> and we're hanging from trees and doing things like that, which appears to be, you know, pretty difficult for most people to do these days. Yeah. Um, but we definitely have to do more physical work in our day-to-day life than we do now. And that is why I think it's important to use your training in a supplement manner to give the load that we, our bodies need Absolutely. and they don't get anymore. Yeah. And, and I think kind of when you look from just a perspective of sort of the last couple hundred years, I think there's value in doing something really hard, um, semi-regularly. Mm-hmm. And then in between that, just low load movement. Yeah. And for that, for that provides an opportunity to do whatever you want, whether it's walk your dog, whether it's mobility work, whether it's some kind of animal flow type work, low level gymnastics work, swimming, whatever it is, I, th- I think just moving yeah. is, is important. And finding the activities that suit your body is important. Um, you know, and when we deal with elite athletics, um, I think one of the things is it's a little bit different because they move all the time. So it's, it's mitigating that, but they move all the time, but then when they're not doing their sport, um, they sit just like the rest of us. They sit, they're on their phone, they're doing these things just like the rest of us. So it's almost the more dangerous game a little bit because they go from extreme activity for long periods of time to nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the stuff I do in the gym with these guys is just building competency in different patterns and different joints to assist what they do on the course, but then also to assist with the fact that when they're not playing, they're not doing too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. So if you got an opportunity today, you're going to go into the gym mm-hmm. based on your current parameters, like mm-hmm. literally today. What would your training program look like? Uh, well, uh, well, on the on the schedule today, I have something very difficult. Um, <laughs> this is sort of my one of my difficult days. So, ba- for me personally, the way I've kind of designed my training week, um, I don't think is unique, and I've just sort of borrowed things from different people and found what suits me. Uh, but for me today, basically, I've got six exercises. Uh, 20 seconds of work, uh, 40 seconds of rest to move on to the next exercise. So I do six exercises in a row. I rest for four minutes, uh, and then I repeat the whole cycle four, yeah. four times. Um, and I think when you look at the science, uh, doing hard work is important, but appropriate rest intervals is important because when we get into crazy work to rest ratios and these kind of things um we create a lot of tissue hypoxia we create a lot of changes in tissue that are sort of unfavorable long term Mm -hmm. Um, and i've just found once i've sort of gone this way uh, with more appropriate rest intervals with really hard work in between um you know all the things that i've desired as far as strength and hypertrophy and all these things have come along much more easy rather than when you get into the sort of mindset of, oh, I got to just go kill myself in the gym. Uh, that may work for a finite amount of time, but inevitably injury or fatigue or all these things creep yeah, in. Right? I'm guilty of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, we all are, right? Espe- yeah. Especially for you and I and, and other guys who 
whether you're a traveling CEO or whether you're us, you know, assisting on the PGA Tour, um, your opportunities to put in work are probably less than the average person. So that when you get an opportunity to work, you're like, oh, I'm just going to kill myself. going to crush it. Right? <laughs> uh, and, and that's been one of my biggest lessons kind of over the years is, is sort of quelling that voice a little bit. But then knowing that some days, yeah, I can, I can just go and yeah. get in the work. But that's going to come at a cost. So I may not be able to do the type of training I want to do for two, three days. Yeah. Um, and I think knowing, that, knowing that's important. Yeah. Okay, so now... Uh, so you got some experience. You've been traveling quite a bit the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Whether you're an athlete traveling mm-hmm. or anyone who's working in the business world who has to travel a lot, yeah. uh, including, you know, we're talking about business, but obviously athletics, high-end athletics is a business and the team is just the, the product. So you have the coaching staff going with them and everything else. But anyone who's going out there and traveling, uh, what are some of the tools that you utilize currently Mm-hmm. Um, to help you deal with the stresses of travel? What are, what's important for you? Yeah, I think um, we can sort of go down a rabbit hole with this, with yeah. supplementation and all of these things. But I think what it comes down to is doing the simple things really well. So uh, if I'm on an airplane, adequate hydration is, is imperative. So how many alcohol drinks is that? Uh, that's zero alcohol Zero, drinks. okay. Yeah, so the, so the days, I, the day, my travel days... Um, I'm sort of making sure that I have enough water, uh, good quality spring water, um, for over the course of the day I travel. When I get to where I'm going, uh, reconnecting with nature somehow. So typically land, get my car, find a spot that I can just, you know, sit and hang out in nature for a while, just sort of reconnect with that. Uh, and there's a lot of proof, um, on that helps decrease cortisol levels, that helps increase testosterone levels, that helps mitigate a lot of the free radical formation from airline travel, all of these things. So that's kind of really low-hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. It's just hydrate and spend five, ten minutes just sort of reconnecting with nature after you've, you know, after you travel, but before you have to go to your meetings or go to the tour or whatever you have to yeah. do. Um, and then from there, sleep is super important to me. I think everyone wants to you know get all these fancy supplements and all these things but when it comes down to it if you're not sleeping and you're not appropriately sleeping so the quality of sleep is just super important um and so dark room you know cool temperature in the room you know 68 degrees kind of thing um and then you can get into supplementation and stuff after that but until you've done those things those kind of three things to me are sort of the basic things yeah it makes a lot of sense and Again, that kind of almost comes back to what we talked about before is, you know, so many people are, are worried about measuring and collecting all this data in, in mm-hmm. recovery techniques and this mm-hmm. and that. But if you're missing the basics, mm-hmm. like, for example, like you're sleeping, hydration levels, which mm-hmm. is probably as important as anything, yeah. and then reconnecting with nature. If you're not doing those basics, the, the supplementation aspect of it is really just trying to patch holes that you're making in your own profile oh absolutely and and you know for years i was super guilty of that Mm -hmm. um you know i was the guy who would pop 15 pills when i got an airplane and pop 15 pills when i was off to after the airplane um and for different reasons and and they're all sound scientific reasons for doing so um but until you can do all those other things appropriately um i think that's just the next level of things Mm -hmm. and I, i was guilty of that 
Um, so sort of reconnecting with some of the basic stuff and making it as easy as possible. And then if you want to layer supplementation on top of that, then absolutely. Yeah. No, that makes, that makes a ton of sense. Now you talked about <clears throat> good quality water. Yeah. So I think this is something that is important, whether you're an athlete, um, uh, a mom taking care of kids, just absolutely any human, right? Water was always something that we could depend upon, uh, and every other animal could depend upon as being good water. Yeah. And then some crazy thing happened in the nineties where we decided that one, the tap water wasn't good enough probably because it was starting to trend to not being good enough. Mm -hmm. But then it was, if it's in a bottle of water, people thought it was better for them. And, you know, we all know now that just because it's in a bottle definitely doesn't mean it's better. And oftentimes it means it's worse. Yeah. Unfortunately. So how do you, like, what's important for you if you're looking at getting good water? What, what are some of the things you're looking for? One of the big things is uh, getting water that's sort of as natural to a source as possible. I, I think, and that comes back to everything. We, we, can, we can get into the nitty gritty of uh, what pH should the water be and all of these things, but real natural spring water from an appropriate source is kind of on the alkaline side of things. That's yeah. what we're meant to intake as human beings. That's what we've intake for thousands of years. So when you have these waters that are basically municipal water where they've stripped all the minerals um, and they've stripped everything from the water and then they put it in a plastic bottle and say, here you go, that doesn't sit well with me for a number of reasons. Yeah. One, the contamination of the plastic. Two, that's not actual water. And, and I think, you know, in North America, we have this phenomenon where we are underhydrated but we probably drink more water than we should. Right. Um, you know, and I think one of the things I've noticed just at golf courses is typically at golf courses and no absolute, no disrespect, but, um, they have certain brands of water and you can drink six or seven of them and you're still dying of thirst. Yeah. Whereas you can have sort of natural spring water from a good source, ideally in a glass bottle. Um, and it's just much more nourishing that way. Mm. And I think, a lot of times now the proliferation of sort of the electrolyte market and the trace mineral market is just due to the fact that our water quality is not good. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes we do need to add trace minerals to our water. Sometimes we do need to add electrolyte supplements to our water. Um, but when we can find good sources uh, of spring water, of, of natural water, um, then we're just way better off that way. Yeah, like I think one of the concepts that gets missed and definitely in Western society or North American society where we obviously spend most of our time, whether it's our food sources or our day-to-day -day lives, most of us, as you talked about, the need to connect to nature, but most of us don't connect to nature. Mm -hmm. Our food sources sometimes could be considered to be somewhat from nature, but a lot of times it's so altered that it doesn't even look like anything that was once alive. Yeah. And then from a water perspective, we have this idea that water is just water. But water is alive when it's in its natural form. There's tons of organisms that are living in it, and those are all beneficial to us. Mm -hmm. And you know, now these days, people are talking about the how amazing it is that the gut is all these different things for our immune system and everything else. That's that's been common knowledge for so long. It's just now marketable. Um, but we are, in essence, um, an ecosystem, mm -hmm. and the water that we drink was an essential part of that ecosystem for so long. But when we take this whether it's uh, 
city water or a lot of these bottled waters where they strip it out and they add chlorine, they do all these crazy yeah. things to it. Um, now our water is dead and then they add certain trace elements back into it to make it better water, but it's not water. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it's, it, we're not getting hydration on a cellular level, um, which ultimately is, is a problem because if you look at just again, kind of circling back to sports performance, um, dehyde, like very little dehydration has a massive effect on performance. Mm-hmm as far as power output, as far as fatigue levels, as far as strength levels. Um, and this is well documented in yeah. research. So one of the things that's just so important is just appropriate hydration. Um, and I understand that when it comes to golf, you know, uh, finding these things is oftentimes difficult. Uh, and carrying glass bottles of water around right. in your golf bag is probably a, a burden that most people don't want to do. So. A lot of times it's just how can I hydrate away from the golf course um, to provide me the best opportunity to show up at the golf course, knowing that my hydration levels at the course probably aren't going to be great. Mm -hmm. But if I have a strategy of, you know, in the morning and evening and before I get there to do so, um, then we can mitigate a lot of things. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's the great point, right? And we all try to live, well, not all of us, but if we're trying to be as good as we possibly can, we have to accept that we have uh, limitations. Mm-hmm. You know, um, like you said, if you're out there playing around a golf and you're carrying your bag or you're a caddy carrying a bag, you're not going to carry three liters of water with you in a yeah. glass bottle because that's yeah, a bit of a challenge. You already have a heavy enough bag. Yep. Um, so, work knowing that's the case, work around that. Do as good as you can when possible with your intake of, of water um, around your round of golf. Just like eating, if I know I'm going to be traveling to a place. Uh, which we have to do uh, yeah, well, at certain absolutely. times that has crappy food. Yeah. Then I try to figure out where can I get as much good food as possible, mm-hmm. bring as much with me as I can, yeah. make sure I have it available at my house, knowing that when I get to the golf course, the odds of me eating good food is really low. Um, yeah. Well, and, and one of the funny things I think for me and, and, and you as well is um, so many of the things I've learned about uh, how to help these guys on tour has just stemmed from the fact that I'm confronted with a reality where nothing is ideal. Yeah. So just for my own health and my own, you know, cognitive awareness and my own everything, I've sort of searched for all these things to try and figure out mitigation strategies and sort of best practices for traveling, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's airline travel or just being at a golf course or going to towns where you don't know. Um, and I've sort of transferred a lot of that on to Justin and my other athletes. Uh, and that's just sort of a funny thing. It, it all yeah. comes from sort of a self-interest of absolutely you know, trying to be as healthy as we can while we're doing this. And, and I think, you know, as you're, you make a great point, in essence, we're on our, we're our own guinea pigs. Yeah, oh, right? absolutely. We get, uh, especially with our job, we're out there before the guys show up. We're there after they leave. Mm-hmm. So our sleep isn't necessarily always good. And uh, it's a challenge to get good water. And, you know, the guys who work it on tour in our job, most of them doing an awesome job of trying to mitigate these by making sure they have great water quality Absolutely. with them when possible. They have great food. You know, we might, where were we? Philadelphia, we drove 40 minutes to go get a little breakfast because yes. there's nothing <laughs> if, or else around there. So yeah. sometimes you got to do what you got to do because over the course of 30, 40 weeks, if you're not doing those small things, which is what we've harped on all this entire talk, yeah. it's going to add up and you're just not going to be as good as you were at the start of the year, at the end of the year. And we can't have that. Yeah. And, and I think that's, you know, the same for, 
you know, the average person or the traveling executive. Uh, you can go out for dinner and have a couple of glasses of wine and a big steak and all these lovely things. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But if you do that six days a week, every week, yeah. uh, your waistline's probably going to disagree with you yeah. and, and your overall health is probably going to disagree with you. So just having a long-term approach and being uh, just thinking about these things long-term has, has helped us, uh, but in turn has helped our athletes too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what we're going to do, um, we're going to take another short little break. But when we come back, I'm going to hit you up with uh, the deep 10. So that's 10 questions I ask all my deep guests. 10. All right. Deep yeah. 10. And uh, go from there and just see uh, what your answers are and we'll uh, wrap cool. it up. All right, dude. Thanks, brother. Injuries, headaches, back problems. We all experience physical pain in our lives. And the majority of that pain is caused by one thing, inflammation. At Luminos, we've created a safe, all natural pain relief patch that directly targets pain instantly with no side effects. Just apply the Luminos patch directly to an area of pain. The relief can be felt in minutes and it will last all day. Go to Luminos.com right now and start living without pain today. Okay, I'm back with Dr. Brendan McLaughlin, PGA Tour trainer, uh, chiropractor, fitness professional, and it's time for the Deep Ten. I know you're stressed out about this. I'm a little stressed, but I'm not going (laughs) to lie. Okay, so how this works, I'm going to ask you 10 questions. Sure. And uh, you can make these answers as short or as long as you want. And once in a while, I'll elaborate on it or right, man. work in. But here we go. I'll do my best. <laughs> what are two consistent rituals you have in the mornings that you find help to get your day started in a positive manner? Ooh, good question. Uh, I mean, so when I'm home, uh, I've got a 100-pound Italian Mastiff who instantly wants to go outside. So... Uh, as soon as I wake up, taking him outside, do his business, go for a walk, get some morning sunshine, uh, is been very beneficial for me. Um, one is just quiet time in the morning to spend with him. Two, uh, it gives me some morning sunshine. When yeah. Otherwise, I think a lot of times we wake up and we kind of don't get out in the sun. We sort of jump in our car, go to work and do whatever. So. That's a big one. And then two would be, uh, I always try and have about a liter and a half of water every morning before I get anything else. Um, and usually with some trace minerals and some lemon in it. Uh, and that's just helped my hydration levels for the day. Um, mitigated my need for a lot of caffeine over the course of the day. Uh, so those are sort of my two consistent things. I like it. Very good. Okay. How many hours of sleep do you get? Not when you're on the road. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. a whole different animal. Yeah. How many hours of sleep do you get? Uh, what time do you go to bed, get up, and when do you find you are the most productive? Oh, good question. Um, so typically, you know, if it were up to me, I'd go to bed relatively early, kind of 10 o'clock, uh, and wake up, you know, around 6, 6.30. Um, I've always, I think since I was a teenager, I've always really liked my sleep. So kind of mm-hmm. eight and a half, nine hours is sort of important to me. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen when we're on the road, but... Yeah. Uh, and I've always sort of tended to be an early riser, uh, you know, from a little kid. I'd w- when I was little, I'd wake up at 4.30 in the morning and just drive my parents and sleep. Yeah, your parents must have been super happy yeah, about they, that. Yeah, they, they had their own strategies to deal with me at that time. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, typ- typically for me, uh, if I can start the day early, uh, that's kind of beneficial to me. Okay, awesome. So when are you most productive? If you have to do, whether it's something creative or just need to do work, mm-hmm. what time of day do you find you thrive? Yeah, typically mid-morning. Yeah. Um, 
so I'm an early riser, but I, I need a little bit of time to kind of get going. Yeah. Um, so typically mid-morning is oftentimes when I'll get my productivity spike. Uh, and then sometime kind of mid-afternoon generally too. Um, yeah. Sort of, I have sort of two spikes of things. Nice. Uh, and it, it depends too, like if, if it needs to be writing work or creative work versus uh, seeing patients versus, you know, my own workouts and that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. But typically mid-morning. Okay, cool. Uh, do you practice meditation, breathing, or other similar mindful ritual? Uh, if so, how often and where do you like to do that? Right now, I'm super fortunate. The place I live, uh, I've got a beautiful garden in the backyard. Uh, so typically in the morning, kind of after walking the big guy, uh, I'll go in the backyard for a bit. Um, and just, I, I've done traditional breathwork stuff. I've done sort of programs before. Uh, I've done different forms of meditation. Uh, to me, kind of the, the beauty in all of it is just stillness. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, when I'm outside, just sort of being in nature, getting morning sun and just being quiet and practicing stillness. Yeah. And I think another thing that's super beneficial to me and kind of just circle back to the, the training questions you had. Um, honestly, one of my forms of meditation is hard work in the gym. Mm-hmm. I think that sort of, if nothing else, gets you out of your own mind. Yeah. Um, and sort of into your body and cause you don't have a choice. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so for people who really struggle with, um, you know, that kind of thing and practicing stillness or whatever, I think if you just do some hard work, uh, I think that's super beneficial as far as mental clarity. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. That's one of the reasons I have this question on here is many, many, many people struggle with what is kind of like known as traditional meditative mm-hmm. or breathing work. Mm-hmm. And that becomes stressful for them because they're not good at it. Oh, absolutely. And obviously, there's a there's a benefit to doing it. Um, but I, I don't think necessarily everyone has to have that moment of um, whether it's clarity or, or mental emptiness or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be done the same way. And as you're saying, for you, getting out and actually doing intense hard work mm-hmm. does that for you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think... It's one of those things that when we try and if you structure in empty, what I'll call empty time into your day um, to afford the opportunity to do whatever, um, then great. But if I structure in 20 minutes specifically to do meditation and I don't do the meditation, then that creates a whole bunch of mental conversations that are mitigate any benefit I could get from that 20 minutes. But if I structure in, hey, you know, I need 30 minutes just to myself and whatever that means on that day, uh, I think you get a lot more benefit from that. Yeah, awesome. Uh, So we already kind of alluded to this uh, in sort of the main aspect of our our chat today, but uh, what type of training or fitness do you do and why are those your choices? Yeah, I mean, right now, um, my big focus uh, is strength one to rehabilitate a few injuries that I've had uh, in the last couple of years uh, that I just haven't put enough attention on, and two, um, I think for me, my training kind of goes in waves, just like for you, just because we're on the road for a couple of weeks, uh, and then we're home, and then we're on the road, and I just find that um, really focusing on strength work when I'm home 
affords me an opportunity to, you know, maybe work on some mobility stuff for other things when I'm on the road when I don't necessarily have the time or the facility to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me, the kind of the strength work is super important right now. Cool. Okay. So what is your number one personal health hack right now? Ooh, my number one personal health hack. Sleep. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's 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 such a thing that we take for granted, uh, and myself included. Um, and you start to appreciate it a whole heck of a lot when you go weeks with like four or five hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just find, you know, my resting heart rate, my HRV, my mental clarity, my performance in the gym, my performance at work, my relationships, um, they all benefit from me getting quality sleep, yeah. right? Uh, and I can see it start to go the other way when I don't. So I think for me, that's just a simple thing. It's like, okay, don't be an idiot and watch TV till one in the morning. Don't spend time on your phone at night. Yeah. You know, create an environment that is conducive to you getting as much sleep as you need for that person. Uh, and for me, that's like eight and a half, nine hours. Yeah, and to kind of just follow that up, you talked about when you sleep well, the benefits on your resting heart rate and everything like that. And I think for those of you, you know, whether you're watching this on YouTube or if you're listening at home on a podcast, this kind of is a, an important part to think about your own personal health. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about tracking and monitoring and stuff, but some of the basics, like resting heart rate is a pretty basic yeah, aspect. So, you know, for me, my resting heart rate when I'm in a good place is high 30s, low 40s. Mm-hmm. If I'm like at moments of stress and that stress is traveling or or just all these different things that go into it. My resting heart rate goes up to like mid Mm fifties, but most people, if you check them at mid fifties, they'd say you're in a good spot. Yeah. So if you went to, if I went to my doctor and he did my resting heart rate, it was 57. He'd be like, Oh, you're in a good spot. But for me, that's not a good spot. I know I'm going the wrong way. And a lot of times when people go to their doctors, they're kind of put in the parameters of what is normal for the average population versus what is normal for them. And that's because so many people don't pay attention to their own health markers. Um, Like for me, I think it's extremely beneficial for everyone if you're getting blood work done or if you're getting any of these different assessment tools done by your doctor, take a copy of them for your own record so that the next year you can monitor it because your doctor generally only has a few minutes with you. And a lot of times they don't look back at your other records and you can see if things are starting to change whether up or down in your numbers, depending on what you're measuring, but you might still be in the normal range, but it's way different than the year before. That might be something to look into. Yeah, it's super important. And I think the thing people need to remember, especially with blood work and that kind of stuff, is that's just a snapshot in time mm-hmm. for that day. Yeah. Um, and there's so much individual variability. Like you could get your blood work done first thing on a Monday morning after a weekend of not eating great and partying, and yeah. that could be very different than your blood work on a Friday. Absolutely. Where you've sort of checked all your boxes and done all the right things all week. Uh, So that's an important thing for people to remember. But yeah, simple things um, to sort of check in with yourself. Mm -hmm. And and whether you want to use fancy tools, whether you want to be like, hey, I feel really terrible today. And then kind of retrospectively looking back at, you know, why that would be. Um, I don't think enough people do that. Just sort of have a little process of self-assessment with themselves. And it doesn't have to be fancy, um, but it needs to be repeatable and practical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Uh, what is something that you do uh, that you don't think has caught on yet with the general population that you think will be very common in the future? 
Yeah, I mean, within sort of the, the circles we travel and people we associate, I think it's pretty common. I think for most people, it's not, though. Uh, and that's the importance of light. Right. So uh, for me, kind of the three major things are air, light, and water. Uh, and if those things are messed up, then you're kind of behind the eight ball to begin with. So um, the lighting in my home uh, drastically changes, whether it's during the day or at night. So during the day, I'll have sort of lighting similar to sunlight. Uh, and then at night, I'll have sort of dimmer lights and different kinds of light. Uh, and then when I travel, especially if I'm uh, traveling overseas or I have to wake up before the sun gets up, um, I have a different couple different light devices that I use to sort of assist my circadian rhythms. Um, and then at night, I use a red light and sort of far near infrared light uh, to sort of assist with sleep as well. So. The light thing is important to me just because I tried it and it, it worked a ton for me. Mm -hmm. um, and, and really mitigating to me, I spend a lot of time just like you do on my phone, on my computer, just for work. Uh, and that's sort of an unnatural light. So trying to mitigate the fact that we have to be on those things uh, with actual sunlight, but then creating an environment within my home. Uh, to sort of assist with that, I think is important. Mm -hmm. So the great thing is you just answered, I think, my next question, which is uh, what are the top three things that you think people should focus on to let them be their best self? Air, light, and water. Yeah, I, I, that's <laughs> awesome, yeah. Perfect. Okay, so what types of vacations do you prefer to take? And, you know, that could be beach vacations for relaxation, adventure vacations, hanging out in old cities or different parts of the world, national parks. So what kind of, what right now would be the type of vacation you're interested in doing and why is that? Yeah, I mean, that sort of depends on the kind of where I'm at a little bit. I, I think now in my life, um, any opportunity to reconnect with nature, um, I love. And I think for me, especially the ocean, um, I just think there's so much power and benefit to being sort of in that kind of water on the beach and those kind of things that's just sort of what i'm drawn to right mm -hmm. now uh and you know growing up in canada especially kind of in the middle of nowhere um that's always gonna have a special place in my heart so yeah. when i go back and see my parents uh and they truly do live in the middle of nowhere <laughs> um that that's always you know a benefit you know because they have lake huron right there they have forest and, and just sort of being in that environment uh i enjoy but traditionally, you know, I've always loved exploring old cities, um, whether that's in sort of Asia or Europe or, or even in North America. Um, history and architecture is something that's always fascinated me, too. So Very cool. Uh, what are one or two books, documentaries, movies that you recommend and why? Ooh. It's a tough question because it depends it, on the population. It depends obviously. on the population. Yeah. I, think, I think for me as a... You know, as a relatively young guy, uh, sometimes I feel much older than I actually am. But <laughs> as a relatively young guy, I think two books that were important to me uh, were Meditations by Marcus Aurelius um, and Letting Go by Dr. Richard Dawkins. Um, I think those books just provide insight onto kind of the human mind and just thinking. Um, I think we're always told sort of certain thoughts are bad and certain thoughts are good. Uh, and that creates sort of dilemmas in our minds, but realizing that, uh, you know, this might get a little woo-woo for some people, yeah. but realizing that, uh, 
you are not your thoughts and being able to separate that and sort of listen to your thoughts being like, okay, that's interesting. Um, you know, and especially with the Marcus Aurelius book, I mean, those were his personal notes to himself. So just reminders to himself uh, that just survived the test of time and have been translated into multiple different languages. Um, and this is a Roman emperor sort of pre-Christianity just making notes to himself. And I think lessons in human history sort of are always present if you're looking. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't matter from what time period we still are confronted with the same struggles yeah so it, it's nice to see um you know throughout history just people having the self-awareness to sort of check in with themselves and, and write about their personal struggles and it's just to me it's a good reminder yeah and it doesn't matter if you're a roman empire or just a normal person everyone's got absolutely, their struggles right absolutely okay last one uh what animal would you choose to come back in another lifetime oh well, I could pick something cool, but um, probably my dog, man. I mean, that guy gets treated better than anybody I know. Uh, barring that, you know, a wolf would be cool. I think there's something that's always resonated that with me. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hey, man, wolf's a badass animal. Absolutely. Dude. Yeah, pretty, pretty sweet. Uh, if there's anything wild yet, like living its living its life the way it feels like it should be living a wolf seems to be fitting that absolutely yeah awesome man uh well thank you very much for joining me thank you on achieve depth radio uh definitely gonna have you on again you got it man uh but this is uh dr craig davies for achieve depth radio my guest today dr brendan mclaughlin uh chiropractor trainer and um part of the number one team in golf right now thanks again thank you